It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Believe in ghosts? The first simply disappears, the other two died. Pretties. It's your host, Ashley Lana, your giver of nightmares, your fueler of night terrors, and I'm back. This week, I have another scary true crime story for you. And last week, we discussed the conspiracy of the Dyatlov incident, where the nine Soviet hikers disappeared in the winter tundras of Russia. A lot of you gave me feedback and told me that you guys were all on the same wavelength as me when it comes to what you thought it was, which was basically avalanche (laughs) i think not and i thought it was really interesting that you guys all kind of found it the same i mean the evidence kind of points you in one direction and that's the evidence that the government didn't want you to know now this week i have a serial killer (gasps) everybody's favorite so but before i get onto that i have some news on my end so My educational background is that I have a diploma in certified personal fitness training through the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology with a specialization in corrective exercise from the National Academy of Sports Medicine. So with all that, I've also become a motivational speaker and a life coach, but now I'm taking a career path change. Any guesses? Any guesses? Going once, going twice. I am now becoming a forensic behavior analyst also known as a criminal investigative profiler. And this is where I will professionally compile and compare data from similar crimes and offenders to create a profile of a suspect. And they form logical hypotheses based on witness reports, victim testimonies, and crime scene evidence. Kinda sounds like something I'm into right now on a podcast I do once a week, doesn't it? I've spent a decade practicing these techniques just on my own and researching on my end, and I've decided to do it. I'm young and there's no better time than the present, so this is it. Here I come, criminals. Ashley Lana is on the case. (laughs) So moving on, this week I was very blessed to be a special guest on the Spicy Memories podcast with my good friend Captain Cook. And I briefly summarized a true story of a worst of the worst serial killer. And now I'm going to tell the full story on this week's episode. So check out the Spicy Memories podcast where you can hear myself and Christopher, AKA Captain Cook, discuss horror movies, true crime, and food. But since it's me on the podcast, when I say food, I mean cannibalism, the act of consuming human flesh. So with that being said, this is the Fear Podcast. Welcome to Lullaby. The hardest part for me doing this podcast is not the research or the editing. It's choosing which true crime story to tell you. How dark and how gruesome I can get in early episodes in hopes that you'll come back and still want to hear more. So when it comes to the cases I plan, I want to stray away from the spotlighted serial killers that everybody knows, like Jeffrey Dahmer, the BTK killer, John Wayne Gacy, and for fuck's sakes, Ted Bundy. God, I can't stand Ted Bundy. He is done to death but with respect to the victims and the families don't get me wrong but 
Fuck Bundy, man. He... Okay, see? I'm already going off on a tangent. Positivity, positivity, stay away from Bundy. Okay, here we go. So before bed every night, I Google a method of crime in either a city, a country, or a time frame, and then I search for new crimes because I'm constantly looking for new cases to analyze that aren't a Netflix special. The preparation for each case that I tell you is that I take one day reviewing the case and then another two to three days cross-referencing sources and fact-checking specific details. And then the following day, I spend compiling the information into my podcast notes where I go into my recording studio, I light my candles, I turn off all the lights, and I hit record. For this week's lullaby, it's pretty disgusting. So if you thought Jeffrey Dahmer was bad, then buckle up, because if you have a weak stomach, you're gonna wanna pop a gravel or chug an Alka-Seltzer because I am getting gruesome. I am fully warning you that this episode is very graphic and it is a worst of the worst episode. So get comfortable because sweet dreams are made of these. The following story contains subject matter involving graphic descriptions of murder, cannibalism, sexual assault, and crimes against children. Please take into consideration that some topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. It was a particularly quiet evening on February 11, 1927, in Brooklyn, New York City. A man sat reading his newspaper on the trolley after a long day's work. It was then an elderly man with gray hair and a mustache entered and took a seat in a nearby section. With him was a little boy, no more than eight years old. Moments had passed and then the little boy began crying for his mother. The old man tried hushing the child, but to no avail. When the trolley came to a stop, the old man grabbed the boy by his arm and pulled him off at the Ricker Avenue dumps. He led the child down a long, dark gravel road where a standalone house sat in an abandoned lot. The gray man took the little boy upstairs where he stripped him naked and tied him up, disposing of his clothing and leaving him there alone overnight. At 2 p.m. the next day, when the gray man returned, he had a homemade cat of nine tails and a wooden paddle with nails embedded in the end of it. He beat the boy until blood ran down his body. After using his bare hands, the gray man gouged out the little boy's eyes. He took his knife and cut off his ears, nose, and slit his mouth from ear to ear. The gray man's bloodthirst only increased. He decapitated the head and cut the boy's abdomen open and pressed his mouth to the body and drank his blood. After he dismembered the body, he packaged up the meat into newspapers and left for home. Once he was home, he prepared the buttocks for cooking. The gray man placed strips of bacon on each cheek and put them in the oven. And after 25 minutes, he added four onions and some water to create gravy. After two hours, the meal was prepared. The gray man had told himself that he had never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as that human meat. After his capture, the gray man admitted to kidnapping, sexually assaulting, and the cannibalism of more than a hundred children. Albert Fish would go down in history as one of the world's most vile cannibals and children serial killers of all time. This is the true story of the Gray Man, more commonly known to the children as the Boogeyman. Albert Hamilton Fish was born May 19, 1870 in Washington, D.C., United States. He was the youngest of four children to Randall and Ellen Fish, and his family had suffered a long line of mental illness. His mother, Ellen, suffered visual hallucinations, and his uncle was diagnosed with religious mania, while his brother had been admitted into the mental institution. 
four of Albert's relatives, including his sister Anne, had been diagnosed with mental illnesses. In 1895, Albert's father Randall died of a sudden heart attack. Being a widowed mother, Ellen could not afford to take care of all four children. At just five years old, Albert got sent to St. John's Orphanage. It was at this orphanage where Albert Fish explained that he was introduced to his sexual abnormalities. The nun at the orphanage would discipline the boys by bringing them into a room, six at a time, and forcing them to strip down to nothing. And one by one, the sister would whip and beat them, making the other boys watch, knowing that that was about to happen to them. Albert Fish recalled that when he was seven years old, that while watching these beatings and hearing the other boys scream, and being whipped himself got him sexually aroused, and the other boys would harass him for it. Albert Fish would later on recall in his life, saying, quote, I was there till I was nearly nine, and that's where I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw boys doing things that they should not have done. According to psychology, these formative years at the orphanage had a dramatic impact on the criminal activity that Albert Fish would get involved in with as he was an adult. Being subjected to aggressive sexual and physical abuse at an early age is something Albert would internalize and project onto other children later. He neurologically associated violence and sex with young boys. When alone, Albert used to beat himself while masturbating, and simultaneously at times would stick a sheet of cotton soaked in alcohol between his buttocks and light it on fire. This is a practice he would continue to use in his future assaults. Albert Fish said, quote, I always had a desire to inflict pain on others, and to have others inflict pain on me. I always seemed to enjoy everything that hurt. Between 1879 and 1880, Ellen Fish, Albert's mother, had been working as a successful government worker and was able to bring Albert back home. When Albert was 12 years old, he began a sexual relationship with a telegraph boy, where they would engage in coprophagia, which is the act of eating feces, and neurophagia, the act of drinking urine. Together, the two boys would visit bathhouses, where Albert would watch younger boys undress, and this is where Albert spent all of his spare time. This is also when he started frequently answering mail-order classified ads placed by women seeking marriage proposals, with vulgar and obscene letters. He would pretend to be a successful movie producer and offer large sums of money for their services. These letters would become a form of communication that Albert would warp into the future to torture his future victims' families. Mid-1890, 20-year-old Albert and his family moved to New York City, where Albert explained that he became a male sex worker and would sleep with men. It was also at this time when he began raping young boys. He would lure them away from their homes, community centers, and playgrounds, and would sexually assault and torture them with his favorite method, a wooden paddle embedded with nails. Albert once explained that he and another boy visited a wax museum and watched a penis bisection. And this was the moment he became fixated on the idea of genital mutilation. It was in 1898 when Albert was pushed into an arranged marriage to Anna Mary Hoffman, a woman nine years younger than him. Together, the couple had six children. At 28 years old, Albert worked as a house painter, which allowed him to change cities and states frequently. He worked in places where he could stay in the basements or the cellars, and almost all the locations had children. In 1910, Albert would stalk the railroads, and late one night in Delaware, he kept in the shadows until eyes fell upon a young-looking 19-year-old mentally challenged man named Thomas Kitten. Albert took him to an abandoned farmhouse, 
where he told him that he would take care of him in exchange for consensual sexual favors for three weeks. They would participate in consensual sadomasochistic role-playing that ranged from teacher and student and father and son, and Albert was usually the student or the son, and would have Thomas beat him. But after a while, Albert Fish became craving more of the bazaar. He would slice the buttocks of Thomas and press his lips to the blood. Soon, Albert decided it was time to end the relationship with the man. He intentionally planned on killing him and butchering his body and saving the meat, but the hot weather stopped him. He was worried that the meat would spoil faster. Albert tied him up, took a pair of scissors, and began cutting off the tip of his penis. However, the flesh would not cut all the way through, and Albert could not bear the screams of the young man. Albert immediately stopped. He bandaged the injury, he gave Thomas $10, and left for New York City, never again seeing or hearing about Thomas Keaton. In 1917, Albert's wife of 20 years left him for their live-in handyman, John Straub, leaving him with their six children. It was at this time when Albert began developing signs of religious psychosis and schizophrenia. Albert blamed his wife for leaving him, and this internal abandonment psychologically triggered delusions. He was hearing voices that said they were directions from God to sacrifice children. Albert's six children recalled times when Albert would stand in the open field behind their house with his arms outstretched, screaming, I am Christ. See, this guy's a fucking fruitcake, isn't he? So we now see the foundation building the psychopathic characteristics of Albert Fish. We are about to delve deeper into his crimes, but first let's analyze the shit out of him, all right? So when it comes to classifying Albert Fish into a murderer category, he falls into a subcategory that distinguishes him from other serial killers. There are many subcategories, but the most common tend to be visionary, hedonistic, and control seekers. So Albert Fish is what is known as a visionary and hedonistic killer. Visionary killers are people fueled to kill because of the voices they hear or the visions they see. Usually religious figures such as God, angels, and Lord have mercy, the devil. So in Albert's case, he believed that his wife leaving him and the voices from God told him to sacrifice children. He's also a hedonistic killer or they're also known as a thrill killer, so for sexual gratification, and these killers use time-consuming techniques to murder their victims. These usually include dismemberment, necrophilia, mutilation, and they're all MOs of Albert Fish. He's an organized, non-social visionary, hedonistic serial killer, who is a sociopath and a psychopath. He's a fruitcake. Ashley Lana certified fruitcake. Boom, there it is. Okay, moving on. On July 11, 1924, eight-year-old Beatrice Keel was playing alone outside on her parents' Staten Island farm. It was then when Albert Fish stood across the way, staring at the girl, his face expressionless and his body straight. He approached Beatrice, quote, would you like some money to come help me look for rhubarb in a neighboring field? As she began walking away with Albert, her mother yelled at her to come back immediately and go inside the house. Albert simply walked away expressionless, but he was not so easily deterred. Later that same evening, he returned to the Keel farmhouse. Stalking around the premise, he decided it was best to sneak into the barn and sleep for the night. Beatrice's father, Hans Keel, discovered him and chased him away, telling him to never come back. It was May 25th, 1928, when Edward Budd placed a classified ad in the Sunday edition that read, quote, young man, 18, 
Wishes Position in Country, Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. Three days later, on May 28th, 58-year-old Albert Fish visited the Budd household in Manhattan, introducing himself as Frank Howard, a simple farmer in need of assistance. Albert put on the mannerisms of a frail old man with a kind and sweet demeanor. When Albert arrived, he immediately seen 10-year-old Grace, Edward Budd's younger sister. Albert then turned to Edward and said instantly that he was hired and that he would send for him in a few days. On Albert's second visit, he acted like the kind, frail old man that children always fell for. He had lunch with the family and befriended the parents. Albert said that he would come back later in the evening to pick up Edward, but first he had to go to a birthday party that his sister was throwing for one of her children, and he insisted that Grace should go with him. After Albert sweet-talked the parents, they agreed. He took the hand of 10-year-old Grace, and she was never seen alive again. The next morning, Edward Budd rushed to the police station to file a missing persons report for his little sister. He gave the lieutenant every detail about this Frank Howard. The police quickly discovered that everything about Frank Howard was a lie, and he did not exist. On June 7th, the police sent out a thousand flyers with a photo of Grace Budd and a description of the quote, old gray man. The station was then flooded with letters claiming that they seen Grace, but they were all fake. A year prior to the disappearance of Grace Budd, the New York police received a call about a disappearance of four-year-old Billy Gaffney. On February 11, 1927, four-year-old Billy Gaffney played in the hallway outside his apartment with his three-year-old neighbor, who was also named Billy. A 12-year-old neighbor who was babysitting his sleeping baby sister went to join the boys but went back into his apartment quickly after hearing his sister cry. Upon returning, he noticed that both little boys were gone, and then he told the younger Billy's father. Together, they searched the building and found his son at the top floor. Where's Billy Gaffney? The man asked his son. The little boy responded, the boogeyman took him. The police arrived soon after, disregarding the three-year-old witness's statements for his descriptions of the quote, boogeyman, for they were too simple. Slender, old, gray man with a gray mustache. Although the descriptions of the Billy Gaffney case were similar to the Grace Bud descriptions, they were disregarded. Later in July of 1924, eight-year-old Francis McDonnell played in the front porch of his mother's home in Staten Island. His mother was sitting nearby feeding her daughter when she seen a gaunt, slender old man with gray hair and a mustache standing in their yard. The old man was staring with unblinking cold blue eyes with an expressionless face at her son. His arms were straight at his sides and his hands were clenching and unclenching. After a few minutes, only his eyes moved to look directly at her. He tipped his hat and walked away. It was later that evening when the gray man was back watching as Francis played on the street with four other boys. Albert beckoned Francis over and guided him into the woods. The other young boys just continued to play. When Francis was not back for dinner, his father called the police and a search party was sent out to the woods. A neighbor told them that they had seen a young boy who looked like Francis go into the woods with an old gray man. Soon the investigators found the body of Francis McDonald underneath some branches. He had been horrifically assaulted and strangled with his suspenders. The police doubted that the brutality of the beating was that of an old man that could have done such a thing. Anna McDonnell, Francis's mother, recalled the sighting of the gray man earlier that day. Quote, 
He came shuffling down the street, mumbling to himself, making queer motions with his hands. I never forgot those hands. I shuddered when I looked at them, how they opened and shut, opened and shut, opened and shut. I saw him look towards Francis and the others. I saw his gray, thick hair, his drooping gray mustache. Everything seemed faded and gray. Seven years later, in November of 1934, there was only one person who did not lose hope in finding the gray man, Detective William F. King. King would go on to purposely tell a news journalist about a break in the case as a scare tactic to lure out the perpetrator. The news journalist published, quote, I checked on the Grace Bud mystery. She was eight when she was kidnapped about six years ago. And it's safe to tell you that the Department of Missing Persons will break the case or they expect to in four weeks. 10 days later, Grace's mother received a letter. Unfortunately, from her lack of education, it prevented her from reading the horrific details. Her son Edward read it instead and immediately ran out the door to get Detective King. Warning, the following letter was written by Albert Fish and sent to the parents of 10-year-old Grace Budd. This may be disturbing for some listeners. Dear Mrs. Budd, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco for Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned to the boat, it was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China, and meat of any kind was sold from one to three dollars per pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all the children under 12 were sold for food in order to keep the others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go into any shop and ask for any steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or a girl would be brought out and just what you wanted was cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and is sold as a veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long that he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven and one 11 years old. He took them to his home, he stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night, he would spank them. He tortured them to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the 11 year old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten, except for the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. At that time, I was living at 409 100th Street, near the right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, and I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called you at 406 West 15th Street. Brought you a pot of cheese and some strawberries. We had lunch, and Grace sat on my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester. I had already picked it out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped off all my clothes. I knew if I did not, I would get blood on them. When I was all ready, I went to the window and I called her. 
Then I hid in the closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How did she kick, bite, and scratch? So I choked her to death, then cut her into small pieces so I could take my meat into my rooms, cook it, and eat it. I roasted her body in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. Detective King did not want to believe the horrific letter, but due to the detailed recollection of the letter, from the meeting with the buds and the descriptions, he knew that this letter was from the Gray Man. A clue that escalated the case was a hexagonal emblem on the envelope with the letters NYPCBA, which stood for the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. Detective King met with the entire board of the association, asking to be granted access to all the handwritten membership forms to cross-examine the penmanship to the letter sent to the buds. A janitor came forward and explained to Detective King that an older man fitting the description of Frank Howard, or the Gray Man, had just checked out of his room that he had been renting a few days prior in her rooming house. The old man fitting Detective King's description went by the tenant's name, Albert H. Fish. The landlady at the rooming house informed Detective King that Albert Fish had told her that he had been expecting a letter from his son containing money. Albert had instructed her to contact him when it had arrived. It was December 13, 1974, when Detective King received a phone call saying that the gray man, Albert Fish, was at the rooming house. When Detective King arrived, he seen a slender, gaunt, old gray man sipping tea from a cup at a small round table. Detective King asked, quote, are you Albert H. Fish? Albert stood, standing 5 foot 5, 130 pounds, and pulled out a razor blade, and he lunged. Detective King put him in an arm lock and said, quote, I've got you now. The Odyssey of Perversion was detailed in a confession by Albert Fish. He proudly explained his, quote, bloodthirst, and initially went to kidnap Edward Budd and torture and rape him followed by cutting off his penis and leaving him to bleed to death. But it was if angels spoke to him and he fell for 10-year-old Grace. Albert stoically recalled with dead eyes how Grace was overjoyed with the entire journey to the abandoned farmhouse. He had purchased a butcher's knife, cleaver, and a saw that he had wrapped in a bundle. Albert chuckled at the fact that he'd been so enthralled with the idea of eating the little girl that he forgot the bundle as he got up from the train seat. And Grace, reminded him that he forgot it. He went on to say that the two got off at Worthington Station and began the long walk to the abandoned Wisteria Cottage. Once they arrived, Grace was playing outside collecting wildflowers, while Albert went inside to the second floor and began laying out his tools. He undressed completely naked and called out from the window for Grace to come upstairs. And when Grace entered the room, she seen Albert naked and she screamed. When she tried to escape, Albert told detectives that he had strangled her and he had become sexually aroused while watching her die. Once she was dead, he decapitated her. He collected the blood in a paint can, and he proceeded to cut her body in half and wrap the pieces in newspaper and dispose of the remaining parts, as well as the tools behind a stone wall. Detective King asked, quote, what caused you to do such a horrible thing? Albert Fish responded, quote, you know, I could never account for it. Detective King drove Mr. Budd and his son Edward to the police station to identify Fish. Edward did more than identify Fish. He threw himself at the old man, screaming, You old bastard, you dirty son of a bitch. 
Albert showed absolutely zero emotion and had an expressionless face. Cold blue eyes just stared into dead air. Albert Fish's criminal record dated back to 1903, when he had been in jail for grand larceny. He had been arrested six times for petty crimes, such as sending obscene letters and petty theft. Half of those arrests occurred at the time of Gracie's kidnapping. Each time, the charges were dismissed. During his trial, a witness came forward, recognizing Albert's photo from the newspaper. He told police that back in February 1927, he had seen Albert and a young boy on a train, and the young boy was crying for his mother. Albert dragged the boy off the train, and this boy was four-year-old Billy Gaffney. Here's the statement that Albert Fish gave during his trial. Quote, I brought him to Ricker Ave Dumps. There's a house that stands alone there, not too far from where I took him. I stripped him naked and tied his hands and feet. I gagged him with a piece of dirty rag that I picked out of the dump, and then I burned his clothes. I threw his shoes in the dump, and I walked back to the trolley. It was about 2 a.m., and I walked home from there. The next day, at about 2 p.m., I took tools. A good, heavy cat of nine tails, homemade, short handle. I cut one of my belts in half, and I slit these halves into six strips, about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till blood ran down his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, I slit his mouth from ear to ear, and I gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife into his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me, and I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in the grip. Then I cut him through the middle of his body just below the belly button, then through his legs about two inches below his behind. I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off his head, feet, arms, hands, and the legs below his knee. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body that I liked best, but I kept the fat from his behind to roast in the oven and eat. I made stew out of his ears, his nose, and pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open. I cut off his monkey and peewees and I washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and I put it in the oven. Then I picked four onions and then when the meat had roasted for about half an hour, I poured a pint of water over it and I created gravy with some onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet fat little behind did. I ate every bit of meat in it for about four days. Albert Fish was thrown into an extensive investigation in psychiatric testing. Dr. Wortham considered Fish's unparalleled perversity unique in that of psychiatric and criminal literature. Sadomasochism directed against children, particularly boys, took the lead in his sexual regressive development. Albert Fish told the psychiatrist that he needed to feel pain to feel sexually alive. He admitted to the psychiatrist that he would enjoy sticking needles into his body and had been doing it for years in the area between his rectum and his scrotum. Albert Fish told of doing it to other people too, especially children. At first he said that he had only stuck needles in and then pulled them out again. Then he had stuck others in so far that he was unable to get them out, and they stayed there. The doctor had him take an x-ray to make sure they were there. There were at least 29 needles in Albert Fish's pelvic region. 
About the age of 55, Albert Fish started to experience hallucinations and delusions. He had visions of Christ and his angels, and he began engrossing himself in religious speculations about purging himself, purging his sins, atonement by physical suffering and self-torture, and human sacrifices. He would go on endlessly with quotations from the Bible, all mixed up with his own sentences, such as, quote, Happy is he that taketh thy little ones, and dasheth their heads against the stones. Albert believed that God put him in charge of castrating young boys, and he had been doing it for years. He suffered from religious psychosis. His six children would see him, quote, hitting himself on his nude body with a nail-studded paddle. His sons would witness him masturbating while beating his penis with the nail paddle as well, until blood covered his body. They also saw him stand alone on a hill with his hands raised, shouting, I am Christ. Albert Fish told investigators, quote, what I did must have been right, or an angel would have stopped me, just as an angel stopped Abraham in the Bible from sacrificing his son. Albert Fish was diagnosed with paranoid psychosis. Albert's children never visited him while he was in jail, and they testified at his trial, confirming that his self-flagellation and religious delusions were there. Besides that, they all confirmed that he was a good father and never did anything to hurt them. When it comes to serial killers having children, I find the topic very fascinating because how serial killers view their own children turns out to be very complicated. So criminal profilers have collected details discovered from families and family members to form four basic categories on how serial killers treat their children. One, they care about them and protect them. Two, they include them in their crimes. Three, they kill them. Or four, they maintain the deception. So Albert Fish had six children who he never sexually assaulted. He molested and abused other children for 40 plus years. And although his children witnessed his strange behaviors with his games where he would have them beat him, there was no sexual assault on his kids. Albert's daughters testified that their father had strange habits. <laughs> no shit, but he would never hurt them. Once their mother died, Albert began having visions of God and angels, and this is kind of where the Fruit Loop started to unravel. So this one time, his one daughter remembers coming downstairs to find Albert rolled up into a carpet until dawn because an angel told him to. Now I'm sorry, I love my mom, don't get me wrong, she's a fucking, I love my mom. But if I came downstairs in the middle of the night and she was rolled up in a carpet, deuces. I have read way too many serial killer shit to go up and be like, are you okay? No, that's how people die. That is all. Mom, if you're listening, I love you. Don't roll up in any carpets. His sons had more of a disdain for him though, especially after his arrest. So it's almost like the arrest solidified that he was just losing his marbles. Cause at one point, Albert Fish lived with his one son, Albert Jr. And it is assumed that at this time frame there were arguments because Albert Fish Jr. said, quote, that old skunk, I always knew that he would get caught for something like this. So his father, Albert Fish, told his sisters that he disowned Albert Jr. as well. It isn't known what happened, but I can only assume kids can only take carpets and paddle dick beatings for so long. But that's just me. So Albert Fish falls into a category where he hid his crimes from his children, but he also protected his children. He is just so creepy. I cannot think of a better word to describe Albert Fish besides insane and creepy. 
Mary Nicholas was Elbert's 17-year-old stepdaughter, and she testified in court. She explained a game that Elbert taught them as a child. Quote, he went into his room, and he had a little pair of trunks, brown trunks, that he would put on. He put those on and came out into the front room, and he got down on his hands and knees, and he had a paint stick that he stirred paint with. He would give the stick to one of us, and then he would get down on his hands and knees, and we would sit on his back, one at a time, with our back facing him. And then we would put up fingers, and he would have to tell us how many fingers we had up. And if he guessed right, which he never did, we were supposed to hit him. Sometimes he would even say more fingers than we really had. And if he ever guessed right, we would hit him anyways, as many fingers as we would have up. Also, he would stick needles under his fingers in front of the children. It was something we didn't like. Albert Fish pled guilty to the kidnapping and murder of three missing children. However, he claimed that his count was 200 plus because nobody looked for the orphans and all the minorities. The trial of Albert H. Fish lasted 10 days. He was found guilty of kidnapping and three counts of first degree murder. And on January 16, 1936, he was executed by electrocution at the age of 65 years old. Fish told the court, what a thrill that will be if I die in the electric chair. It will be a supreme thrill, the only one I haven't tried. That is the Gray Man, the Boogeyman, the Wolf of Wisteria, Albert Fish. He is such a creepy individual. There are so many better adjectives to describe him, but sometimes the simplest are the most powerful in my eyes. I'm looking at multiple photos of him right now, and he just has the same blank expression in every single one. And he's got this gaunt face with sunken in cheekbones and this cold expressionless stare. And during the trial, everyone could not get over how unfazed he remained the entire proceedings. And it wasn't until he had to describe his killings that he would actually smile. And he would do it without blinking. Ugh. Gross. He honestly, look up pictures of this guy. He reminds me of those scenes in a horror movie when the music stops and a person is just staring blankly and then they just open their mouth and demons scream at the top of their lungs. That's what I'm waiting for with these photographs. I'll post them all on the Lullaby Instagram page and you tell me like, he is so creepy. What's my creepy word count right now? 12? <laughs> He's so weird. <gasps> Oh man, okay, here, right now, this minute, this second, I am changing the recommended movie this week because I keep saying the word creep and I've got a scary movie for you guys because we are on a never-ending quest to find a truly scary movie. There'll be more, many more. They're coming for me now. And then they'll come for you. The recommended film this week is the psychological thriller, the 2014 film, Creep. Good news, it has nothing to do with child murder or pedophilia, two thumbs up. It is about a videographer who answers an advertisement on Craigslist <laughs> for a one day job in a secluded mountain lodge of a dying man. And then his requests start to get very creepy. I'm also going to start recommending horror short films every week because not everyone has time for a full-length film and horror shorts can run anywhere from a minute 
to 10 minutes. Some can run longer, but I myself enjoy them because they are short. And on the Spicy Memories podcast, I was talking to Christopher and we discussed how it's hard to get scared. And I told him that I watch horror shorts on YouTube because they're scary. They can actually scare me. And that's because you get thrown into a scenario with no time to digest what the creature could be or what the issue is. And then bam, scare and it's over. They're so good. And I highly recommend you start getting into these if you love being scared. The horror short film I'm recommending this week is The Smiling Man. It's six minutes and 22 seconds long and it's on YouTube. I will link the video in the episode description and I will post about it on my Instagram. However, I'm not telling you what the horror shorts are ever about. You're welcome. (laughs) So watch Creep, let me know what you think. Watch The Smiling Man, let me know what you think. And continue sending me your scary movies. I tried to scare you, now you try to scare me. Tell your friends about the podcast, rate and review. Follow Lullaby the Fear Podcast on Instagram at Lullaby the Fear Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Lullaby. Sweet dreams. Lights out. <laughs>